Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. This is David Rovix and you are tuned to 3CR, 8.55am, Melbourne, Australia. Step three is finding there's a tactic when everyone believes it could be true. That if all the people work collectively, there just might be something we can do and everything can change. Good evening, listeners. This is the Beyond Zero Community Show, and this is Jane. Vivian's not in the studio tonight, but she's lined up a series of uh, slightly depressing but interesting, interesting uh, uh, interviewees on climate change. We're ramping up against coal tonight, and uh, first up, we're going to have Tom Mitchell, who's a writer for the online magazine New Matilda. Tom has been following closely the the case playing out in the Queensland court about the Galilee Basin. But first, I'm going to give you a little grab from Adrian Baragaba, who spoke, who, if you recall from last week, we had an extended interview with him. My name is Adrian Burugaba. We're at a crucial time in history now where these great mega mines are coming to us and asking us as the traditional owners of the land to sign away our uh, native title rights and interests to that land. These mines are, are, are very dangerous and they're detrimental to not only just the environment but the, the laws and customs that you know, are, are based in that land that are very important to the Wangan and Jagalingu people. The most important thing is for us to maintain our cultural integrity. Some of these mines will be here right into the future, 40, 50, 60 years from now. We could lose our identity. We're going to make every effort to stop this mining company from destroying our land. I'm going to convince all of our people to stand together as one people and one voice. And then we're going to ask all Australian people and people from all over the world to stand with us and unite with us to fight this fight. This is not an easy fight for us, and we're asking everybody to stand with us to stop these mines from destroying this land. We don't need this coal. We don't need them. We don't need their money. We need them to leave our land alone. We need to protect that land. Our forefathers, my father and their grandfather, they had their their money, they had their wages garnished and money taken off them, and so there was no inheritance for us. And all we've got left now is our inheritance is the land, and that's our responsibility. Some good news in relation to the Adani coal mine in Queensland was reported last week that the State Bank of India has reneged on its $1 billion financing agreement for the Galilee Basin coal mine. Uh, And if you go to 350.org, they've got a bit of an article about that. But the CEO, Blair Palacy, has stated that this news is a massive blow to Adani and its ill-fated plan to mine Australian coal for export to Asia and to turn the Great Barrier Reef into a major shipping route. 
We know that burning coal is the number one contributor to climate disruption and if we want to avoid going over the climate cliff, 90% of Australia's coal must stay in the ground. Well, that's not news to us, is it, listener? Now we go to the interview with Tom Mitchell from New Matilda. Here's Viv and Tom. Tom Mitchell is our guest tonight. He's a journalist with the New Matilda online magazine. His article, If We Don't Dig It Up, Someone Else Will, caught my attention. It's about an ongoing court case in Queensland. The main characters in this drama are the Indian coal company Adani and a community group called Land Services of Coast and Country. So welcome, uh, Tom. Tell us what's interesting about this case. Well, I think the main thing about this case is that it's what's known as a merits review or a merits appeal. Um, and so the court, which is the Land Court of Queensland, it doesn't actually have the power to reject Adani's proposed Carmichael coal mine. No. But what it does allow is it allows for land services of coast and country to bring in a range of expert witnesses, and it's really broad-ranging. So, you know, there's ecologists, there's economists, there's climate scientists, and all sorts of different experts, but it allows them to sort of trawl through all of the documentation that Adani has put forward to the government, which is both the New South... The, sorry, the Queensland government and the federal government, and um, basically to really pick through that information. Um, and so while it won't have a binding outcome, it does sort of allow for a range of different assumptions, you know, different data, modelling, and those sorts of things to be tested. And, and, I mean, that's significant because, you know, typically mining proponents will have all of that done for them by consultants. Mm. Um, and as you can imagine, you know, you, you wouldn't hire a consultant who you thought was going to give you an answer you didn't like. No. Well, could the Land Court recommend to the Queensland Government to not approve this Adani project just because of the carbon emissions when the coal is burnt? Yeah, well, I mean, my understanding is that the court could, of course, it can recommend not to approve it, and it won't be binding, but, I mean, I think that it would be very significant, and given the amount of community concern and opposition that there is to it, it would sort of give a lot more legitimacy to that concern and give it a sort of formal expression which would then increase, I think, the, the pressure on the Queensland government to give it a really serious thought as to whether or not it was in the best interests of, of Queensland and, and its environment. Yes. What does Adani's expert witness say? Oh, their climate witness? Yep. Well, um, they've, it, it's quite bizarre. And, I mean, it's not the sort of argument that I think Adani would, would prefer to make, but um, they've... Their expert witness is, is Dr. Chris Taylor, and um, he's basically said that on, on current agreements and, and negotiations from countries around the world, um, we're likely to see a 3.1 degree rise in global temperatures by 2100, um, and we're likely to see that irrespective of whether or not the Carmichael project goes ahead. And so there, Adani is using that sort of information. Uh, and, I mean, there's, there's not really any dispute about how that would impact, say, an ecosystem like the Great Barrier Reef, which is what I talked about in my article. But what they're arguing is, well, if, if it's going to happen anyway, it doesn't matter whether or not we do it or someone else does it because the demand will be there for the coal in places like India, which is you know the main place that Adani is planning to export to. Um, and so, yeah, I mean... That's their argument, but inherent in an argument like that is that 
you know, the Great Barrier Reef is doomed. Um, and that's what a lot of the public concern about it is, is about. Sorry. So, I mean, I can, you know, I can understand their argument that that's likely. Of course, we do have the, um, the Paris climate talks coming up in December. And, yeah. and the aim of those will be to keep emissions and, and the associated temperature rises below two degrees. Well, it's so, a cynical argument, really, isn't it? Even though scientifically it's probably correct. Everyone says we are on a trajectory to something like four degrees of warming with the behaviour we're doing now, but the proviso is that we stop that behaviour. Well, exactly. And, I mean, that, that's the great hope for Paris. And I, I do think that, you know, given some of the announcement that, that various countries have made, and, I mean, I, I think that two-thirds of the countries or two-thirds of the countries that are responsible for the world's emissions have, have come forward with targets. And, you know, on the whole, they seem to be at a, at a new level of seriousness, you know, not what we sort of saw at, at Copenhagen and Kyoto before that. Um, so I do think that there's hope. I do think that it's unfortunate timing that this, this argument really does rely on what is known today, um, and it doesn't take into account what may happen and what, you know, we all would hope would happen in December. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, it is cynical. Um, I mean, in a sense, I would say it's probably opportunistic. Um, but at the same time, it may well be true. And, and that's, you know, that's a sad fact more than anything else. Oh, and, you know, the culpability there. I mean, we're talking about a legal situation where the law isn't really up to climate change, I don't think. You know, there aren't laws. Look at the BP oil spill in the Gulf. I mean, they... The, you know, there were individual fish, fishing groups and people who took them to court, BP, but, but they didn't. They didn't have to face a kind of ecocide charge of having destroyed that whole water area and its ecosystem. So I think, you know, the law isn't really up to it at the moment, it seems to me. And maybe I'm wrong, but I'm hoping that this case, just because the Great Barrier Reef is such a well-known and such a beautiful and precious thing... Um, the effects that in your in your article, you had some photos there showing a sort of before and after what the reef is now with already one degree of warming and what it would be like with over two degrees warming. It'd be like a desert. Mm. Well, yeah, exactly. Those pictures were taken from an article in a in the American journal Science, which is you know probably America's most respected um, environmental journal, um, and that was from the expert witness for the community group, which is taking this court, this case to, to court and taking Adani to court. Um, but I do think that that expert witness uh, raised an interesting point. You know, Adani was making this comparison in court where they were saying, well, if you're driving a car and that's, you know, creating emissions, who's responsible for those emissions? Is it the person who's driving the car and directly creating the emissions or is it the person who sold the petrol? Um, but what his response to that was, was he said, you know, I think you can then take a cigarette manufacturer. They don't grow the tobacco, but they package it up nicely, and, and clearly they're being regulated. Um, and I think that that does speak to the cynicism of the argument to an extent, yes. um, because as, as you're sort of suggesting, well, the answer to that would be, let's not destroy the Great Barrier Reef, let's work towards a solution where we don't have to see it destroyed. Yeah. Um, I mean, of course, that's not in the interests of a big multinational coal mining company to say that. You know, on the f sort of law around dealing with climate change and being responsible for environmental damage, there is a woman, uh, I think she's a British woman, but her name is Polly Higgins. Yes. And she's actually talking about ecocide. developing this idea of a, yeah, a crime of ecocide, which yep. is sort of similar to crimes against humanity, you know. Mm. 
um, but basically saying that yes, people should be held responsible if, if you're going to drive, you know, species to extinction, either through sort of negligence or, or through, you know, knowingly through your actions. Then yeah, there should be some sort of repercussion because other species should have a right to life. And I mean, I think that's a really interesting idea, but. On the issue of climate change, there is actually a case which will go before the federal court in April, um, and that is it's much more focused on climate change, and it's not really directly dealing with the climate science, but it's looking at because the Carmichael Coal Project does have federal environmental approval, but it's looking at the idea that Minister Hunt, when he made that decision, that's Greg Hunt, Environment Minister at a federal level, when he made that decision. He didn't really take into account the climate impacts when the coal is burnt in a third-party country. Mm, funny um, that. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, that's just how mining approvals have, have been done, is that they, it takes into account what they call scope two emissions, so only emissions created in the actual digging up of the coal, mm. uh, not when it's burnt in a third oh, country. They always do a, that. Yeah, they yeah. just deny you know, that any of our emissions that we export are our emissions. Yeah, but I mean, if, if this case is successful, because it's looking at how the minister should have interpreted the Environmental Protection Biodiversity Conservation Act, which is sort of the, you know, the omnibus federal environmental law, if that's successful, then it will, I think, create some, something of a precedent for future coal mine approvals at a federal level where he may then have to go, well, this will be burnt in another country. That's the point of digging it up. And so we should consider what impact that will have on Australia's environment, which is responsible for, because we know that it will have that impact. Um, and so it's about whether or not you have a direct responsibility under the Act. But I think it's one to watch. I think also it's that word knowingly, which is what Polly Higgins um, says. You know, in the 19th century, we burnt coal, but it wasn't knowingly creating climate change. Now we do this with wide open eyes and all this scientific information. And if the coal is exported from the Carmichael mine and the port at Abbott Port expands and, you know, Adani is responsible for killing the Great Barrier Reef, um, is the Queensland government going to be held accountable? Well, surely if they knowingly saw that two degrees of warming, three degrees of warming would follow from this. The United Nations is breathing down their necks. Do you think there's been pressure from outside as well as inside Australia on the Queensland um, and the federal government to take stock at this point? Um, look, I mean, I think that that is really key. I think that pressure from the outside will be what does it. Tony Abbott recently was busted by Fairfax. I mean, the government, the federal government is pursuing fairly vigorously this idea that, you know, we need to basically sustain our exports and, and capitalise on a growing Asian market and keep those, you know, developing economies dependent on coal, um, which is obviously the opposite of, of something that would have a, a good outcome for the climate. But, I mean, I think that the international movement um, particularly in places like China, which is why this is the other thing, is whether or not there's the demand for the Galilee project is very mm. questionable. But, I mean, I think that outside economic forces, more than anything else, will force that change. Um, interestingly, the federal government is actually very well advanced in a process of trying to outsource its environmental powers down to the states. Um, and so they're, they're basically trying to abrogate themselves of, of the majority of their responsibilities mm. 
as the federal environment minister. So, mm. I mean, I'm not entirely sure what he would really do. Yeah. Um, it's going to be the actions of other countries and, and the actions of individuals. You know, we've seen the growing divestment movement. That's another thing that's placing a lot of pressure on Adani. I mean, they've recently, only yesterday, three major French banks yes. ruled out financing Galilee coal projects. Mm. Um, and that brings the total to 11 banks major international banks, you know, 10 of them are in the top 20 lenders to Australian coal development. Yeah, I think that the economics are what will kill off these projects if, if they don't go ahead. The interesting thing about this case in, in the land court at the moment is that I think that will be the main sort of showstopper is actually pulling apart the claims. Yeah, yeah. go on. <laughs> well, I'm hoping it will. I'm hoping we can interview you when this dramatic event happens, but I'm sure Adani's trump card will be, you know, that they're going to bring so many jobs to Australians and the royalties will flow to Australia, and I'm sure it will be a very... I'd like to know from you, how tempting is it, you know, what they're offering Australia? I think that it, it would be a very short-sighted... Um, the thing about these projects is that, it, you know... The biggest one, which is Adani's Carmichael one, but, you know, a couple of others as well, they're, they're sort of talking about a 60 to 90-year time frame. And, um, I mean, that commits us to a, still a massive coal industry going, you know, well forward into the future, which is not where we want to be. Mm. Um, and so, I mean, I don't think that that's a tempting prospect. And, I mean, we've seen with Adani and the Galilee projects where the Newman government in, in Queensland, the one that's just got the boot. Um, you know, they were claiming that it was going to create 30,000 jobs developing the Galilee coal fields, and it just wasn't true. Um, mm. They're still sort of claiming it. I mean, they're kind of hiding behind the idea that it will also create indirect jobs. But what I think that that's really symptomatic of is, is just governments are very confused and very worried about what we're going to do post-mining, but I don't think the answer to that question will be to try and sustain our mining industry for as long as possible and, and breathe life into it through you know through subsidies and through yeah. helping people get approvals i mean that's not a long-term solution mm. if we're heading for a cliff economically then you know we need to start doing something now to try and to try and break the fall and you know john Hewson, the former liberal prime minister has been saying that for the last few weeks about the renewable energy target. And he's a, you know, he's a revered economist. Yeah. He's a former Liberal Prime Minister. And yeah. this is the amazing thing, is that it just doesn't really make economic sense to try and prolong the life of an industry that we know is not going to be able to sustain our economy long term. Mm. All right. Well, on that note, I think we'll finish. I hope uh, uh, listeners will become readers of Tom Mitchell's articles in uh, New Matilda. It's an online journal. You just go to New Matilda and follow his articles. He also has covered lead state forest issues with us, Malls Creek. We've interviewed him about that. So, Tom, I hope we'll come back to you at the end of this court case and hear what happened. But thank you very much for talking to us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. All right. Bye-bye. Hey Jodie, I'm so excited. I just can't hide it. Oh, just in the words of the Pointer Sisters, hey? Why? What's happening? The new 3CR t-shirts are coming out. We had a competition, Kate Reid won it, and it's so beautiful. It's got roses and a love heart, and then the caption is, resistance is fertile. Oh, too deadly that, eh? So in order to get one, go to the 3CR website and follow the link to shop. And right. they're $30. $30? Oh, yeah. what a bargain. And 25 for kids. You'll be able to secure one for yourself because they're in hot demand. Yay, get one now. I'm 
And if you were listening last week, you would have heard uh, Vivian speaking to Alan Sandal, the uh, a Melbourne Victorian uh, Greens representative. Uh, she was talking about the campaign to close down the Hazelwood power mine. There was a rally on the 15th of April and we're bringing you some of the speeches that were made at that rally. Let's hit coal in the ground. Hazelwood, replace it now. Let's hit coal in the ground. Hazelwood, replace it now. Let's hit coal in the ground. We know as workers and as a union movement that more jobs were lost in the privatisation of the electricity industry in the Latrobe Valley than would go if the, all of the remaining power stations were closed there tomorrow. So it's, you know, when they, when they don't care, when they pretend to care about jobs, it really infuriates me from the Liberals and the Nationals. And the, the absolute refusal of the Liberals and the Nationals at all levels of government in Australia to do any serious planning for a renewable energy-driven economy is not protecting jobs of Australian workers, it's actually condemning Australian workers to a, a, a future of insecure work unemployment and uh, uh, technological uh, redundancy. So Ellen's call for the replacement of Hazelwood is timely and vital. It should be seen as an opportunity, not as a threat, an opportunity to spark a new direction for the Latrobe Valley and to bring the communities of the valley into the discussion in a way that they haven't been before. Most of all though, the replacement of Hazelwood is a necessity. The evidence of dangerous climate change is everywhere to be seen. The people of the valley, the people of Victoria and Australia and the people of the world will not thank us if we continue to allow toxic brown coal to be burnt at will when there are so many alternatives. Thank you. Let's keep coal in the ground. Hazelwood, replace it now. Let's keep coal in the ground. Hazelwood, replace it now. Let's keep coal in the ground. As we know, when there's a spill at a wind farm, no one really notices that much. <laughs> but when something goes wrong at a coal-fired power station, it is a disaster. And as we saw when the fire at Hazelwood burned for 45 days, it affected a whole community. And we're delighted to have now joining us someone who has documented the effect of that on the whole community and the decisions that led up to that disastrous mine fire that we saw and where we might go next. Um, author of the great book, The Coalface, and I don't get a commission for this, but you should all go out and read it because it's great. Please welcome Tom Doyle. Hazelwood is a potent symbol of everything that's wrong with Australia's current energy policy. It has to go. But at the same time, I'm here to tell you that this is not just an environmental issue. As Alan and Anna have mentioned, replacing Hazelwood is also a social issue, a complex social justice issue, and one that will profoundly affect the Latrobe Valley community for decades to come. So at the beginning of last year, I'd never been to Morwell. But when the, when the mine fire happened, two weeks into the fire, I, I went down to see for myself. It's less than two hours drive, but it's a, it's a world away, really. When I arrived, it was like walking into an undeclared disaster zone, which it was. The ash was thick in the air, stung my eyes and caught in my throat. People were walking around wearing face masks that didn't protect them from the fine particulate matter or carbon monoxide. 
inside a local op shop. There was so much coughing, it sounded like a lung cancer ward. And outside on the street, in the smoke, I saw an old man collapse on the footpath. After 24 hours in Morwell, I drove home with a headache and heart palpitations and started coughing up phlegm with blood in In the months to come, thousands of people would become sick. An analysis of the births, deaths and marriages statistics found a spike in deaths, at least an extra 11 extra deaths in the six weeks of the fire. The Hayeswood Mine Fire was one of the worst public health disasters in Australian history. And the Liberal government consistently denied, downplayed and ignored the scale and severity of this catastrophe. Since the fires, I've spent a lot of time in the Latrobe Valley. And one thing is very clear. No one down in the valley likes the coal industry. Even and maybe especially the people who work there. They just don't have any other options at the moment. Hazelwood is one of the biggest employers in the region, and coal money is one of the only things propping up the local economy, which is one of the most poverty-stricken in the state. Lots of people in Morwell, and Terralgan, and Churchill, and Mowie feel like they need Hazelwood for their continued survival. Now this can seem like blind loyalty, or worse, but it's not. It's brute pragmatism. If Hazelwood closed tomorrow, a thousand people would lose their jobs, and $100 million annually would disappear from the local economy. Coal is the only game in town, for now. And this is why the bogans of the valley hate greenies like you. They worry the environmentalists just want to take away their jobs without considering how it affects the community. Which is wrong, right? That's wrong. The climate movement has to understand and to communicate that as we strive for long-lasting improvements to the big picture, we are paying attention to little pictures, in this case, life in Morwell. And we take it seriously. If we can do this, we will win. If we can see the redneck coal miners of the Latrobe Valley as our allies, not our enemies, we will win. If we can come up with a robust plan to replace existing coal jobs with jobs, jobs in renewables, jobs in efficient energy, and jobs in mine rehabilitation, which is a massive job just crying out to happen. If we can do this, we will win. Because no one else has a better plan for the Latrobe Valley. No one else has a plan at all. The only plan GDF Sewers has is to make as much money as possible, then bugger off the moment the mine stops being profitable. The only plan the Liberals and Nationals have is to continue with business as usual and berate the Greens for being unrealistic. Labour has a plan. In fact, they've had it for five years. Their plan was John Brugby's plan, or at least it was, and that's to close Hazelwood. We need to hold them to that plan and make sure that it happens. It might not be easy. In fact, it might be fucking difficult. But if we can keep an eye on the little picture as well as the big picture, we'll have the Latrobe Valley on side and we can do it. And we will do it. My name's India Pryor and I'm leading the organising for the Greens uh, campaign to replace Hazelwood. You're going to be hearing a lot more from me over the next coming months, so I'm really glad to see you all here. You look fantastic. Um, give yourself a round of applause. It's looking really good. As we've heard today, we've got a huge opportunity to replace Hazelwood and make sure that we can secure mine rehabilitation and a community-led job, community-led transition plan for people in the Latrobe Valley. We need to hold Labor to their promise. We've seen the quote, hold it up now, loud and proud, John Bromby said back in 2010, either you believe in closing Hazelwood or you don't, and I do. And they talked about the plan they had. But we need to make sure they actually commit to that plan now 
and close Hazelwood. No government can claim to have a credible climate policy unless they're prepared to talk about closing Australia's dirty power station. But we know the market's not going to do that because not only is it the dirtiest, it's the cheapest to run, which means we're going to need some government intervention to actually make this happen. So over the coming months, we're going to be ramping up the pressure on Labor MPs in the inner city and targeting in particular the ministers uh, Richard Wynne in Richmond, Jane Garrett in Brunswick and Fiona Richard in Northcote because these seats are now Labor Greens marginal seats. And as we've seen with the East West Toll Road, we know that Labor is susceptible to pressure from the community on issues that we care about. And it's time for Labor to listen to the community. We want to see real climate action. <laughs> climate Action Moreland is leading the charge and they've actually organized three vigils over the next coming weeks. The first is happening in two weeks time on Thursday, the 30th of April at 7.30am at Labor MP Lizzie Blandford office in Pasco Vale. It's just the first uh, actions and vigils that will be happening over the coming months. Um, we've got some mailing list sign-up sheets circulating so we can tell you about this action and what else is to come. And we'll put up some contact details about that action that's being held in the next uh, week or so. We'll put that up on our website. That's bze.org. So thanks to those speakers for letting us broadcast their speeches at the Hazelwood Rally in Melbourne on the 15th of April. Words out. Freedom of species has hit the airwaves. Tune in for debates and updates on both local and international animal protection news and events and learn about how you can live a cruelty-free, sustainable lifestyle. News, views and non-leather shoes. That's Freedom of Species, 1pm Sundays on 3CR. Authorised by the last few remaining kangaroos, Canberra. Now we are going to climate action on a smaller scale. Viv caught up with Jennifer Colbert from Solar Neighbourhoods and throughout the course of the interview there are contact details uh, provided for you so get your pens ready uh, for when Jennifer and Vivian mention those. Jennifer Colbert from Solar Neighbourhoods. Here's a community solution for you. Uh, There are two women in Melbourne who've launched a group called Solar Neighbours. They are coordinating a bulk buy of solar PV systems. Their names are Rachel Bendel and Jennifer Colbert, who is with me in the studio at, at, of 3CR at Fitzroy. Uh, welcome, Jennifer. Hi, Vivian. What got you started? I was trying to look at getting a decent quote on getting solar, a solar system for my house in North Fitzroy. I have a very little house. And my neighbour had been told she couldn't have solar for various reasons and I was, wasn't given a very satisfactory answer. And I thought it can't be that hard. So I approached council to find out about their In Your Patch program, which was funding small sustainable projects. And they put me together with Rach Bendel, who lived in Elfington, who, for carbon footprint reasons, wanted to get solar and was having trouble getting a decent quote. So together we joined forces and I think have become a bit of a force of nature. We're actually um, recruiting households who might be interested in having that information barrier broken down and also getting a reasonable quality system at the best possible price. Have you found people very enthusiastic when you outline your bulk buying idea? 
people are a bit surprised that somebody would do it voluntarily or that the two of us would, but we had an, our first information night in February at the Elfington Community Centre and it was standing room only. There were enough people that are finding it very difficult to get clear messages about what solar system would suit them and how it can work best for them. That sounds good. So have you found it simple now that you've started going around the suppliers or, you know, or has it just become a nightmare? Um, it's been a bit of a learning curve for both of us and although I don't think either Rachel or I are now solar experts, we now know what people mean when they say a micro-inverter is required. Um, we, but there's lots of things I still don't know. We uh, found the process of working with the Yarra Energy Foundation really fascinating because they are experts in this and we invited them to attend the information night as our technical experts and to field questions from people who were bamboozled about what exactly is a panel. Um, should you have it tracking along uh, towards the sun or would that cost too much? All of those sorts of weird and wonderful things. So we do know a lot more, but that doesn't mean that we are going to be able to come up with an answer for everyone, because basically it comes down to, is solar right for you? Is it going to work for you? And that depends on the motivation for getting it. Okay. Well, this um, Yarra Energy Foundation, their previous experience is more in a big business, isn't it? Um, so what, did, what sort of advice did they give you? YEF have been really very practically helpful. Helpful, they because of their experience with business, they had spent a lot of time setting up a panel of preferred suppliers that they examined in terms of their assets, their financial track record, their health and safety, their insurance premiums all of those things, where they were getting their panels from, did they have any supply chain problems. Um, almost every factor that you can look at in terms of due diligence of a supplier. So starting with that, that level of expertise, we were able to ask for bids for the community bulk buy from their panel of preferred suppliers, as well as we went outside that panel to do our own due diligence on solar suppliers. So we called for expressions of interest and received a total of eight sets of bids mm -hmm. from eight different suppliers. Right. Well, I, I guess you're not going to tell us who is the successful one yet, but um, let's talk now about the people who might um, opt into this scheme. I guess not everyone has a suitable roof to begin with, so what are the criteria for installing a solar, some solar panels on your roof? It really depends on what your motivation is because I don't necessarily think that solar is the solution to everything. If you want to reduce your carbon footprint, then it's obvious that you'd probably put them on. If you want to save money, it really depends on where your household is in the sort of average life cycle um, in terms of how many people are at home during the day, what your energy use pat patterns are. If it's a household of retired people, for example, they're much more likely to use power during the day, which makes it more useful in terms of cutting bills. So it really, you really do have to sit down and do your sums on what's your average daily energy use that helps guide what size system you need, but also 
also, can you shift some of your u- energy usage to during the day? Um, and we find it's interesting. The suppliers that we interviewed when we got to the shortlist made the point that if you lease a system which guarantees you um, a cheaper energy cost then you don't necessarily change your behaviour because you know your electricity is going to be at X number of cents per kilowatt. If, however, you get free energy during the day when the sun's shining, you might then put your washing machine on during the day rather than at night or put your dishwasher on before you head off to work in the morning or put a timer on your switches. So there you do get much more fundamental behaviour changes if you purchase. Okay. Well, what about just... uh in the inner city, there's a lot of roofs that don't get much sun. There'd be some places I know have friends in Carlton, for example, who say we just don't get enough sun, so it's not suitable. So, can they opt into a? Oh, I know. Perhaps that's for a later interview where people can you answer that? Because I was just thinking, I've heard of people um, whose place is shadowed, but they can um, get energy from, say, a factory next door or a place where there's a bigger roof. But what's your solution? There's probably a few practical things. One of the um, variables that we've included in our request for bids was microinverters, which means that rather than having one string inverter for all your panels that converts the solar energy, if you like, into power that you can use, microinverters are where you have a little inverter on each panel, which means that even if you have shadowing for part of the day from a chimney, from a house uh, or from a tree, you can actually still get a reasonable amount of solar power generated. And I'm very aware that probably one of the major differences between an area like Elfington and an area like Fitzroy, Fitzroy has a lot of close-together houses with chimneys and overshadowing, and microinverters are absolutely necessary there. Great. Well, that's something new, and maybe the listeners haven't heard of that. What about people who live in an apartment? Perhaps, let's say, not renting, but they own their own apartment, so there's eight in a block. How can they get solar panels just for themselves? Is that going to be too hard? It's not, and it depends. We already have some people signed up who live in owner-occupied um, units, which are quite set, you know beside each other, so they can clearly have their own solar panels and have it run through their switchboard. But we're also looking at, um, for example, two-storey blocks of apartments, owner-occupied, who may be able to put solar panels on the t- roof and then share the power between each one. Now, I understand that's not been a very common thing in the past, but my understanding through through talking to suppliers, provided there's a joint main switchboard, it's possible to put together what is called a PPA, which is a form of leasing, where the panels are put on the roof and it runs down through the main switchboard and the subsidised power costs go to each of those apartments. So stay tuned because we're going to explore that and get more information available. Fantastic. It's very important. Lots of people find this information quite quite hard to process. So thanks for putting us, getting the ball rolling on this. Um, Now, some people you said, as you said, uh, invest in this to save their, reduce their solar footprint, which is the reason I did it too. It was very expensive years ago when I put solar panels on. So it was definitely for climate change reasons. But other people nowadays are saying, I want to do it to save my electricity bills. Do you think that's still a viable reason? 
The big difference now is that panels and inverters are a lot cheaper than what they were a few years ago. And yes, you don't get the great feed-in tariffs that were there for your surplus electricity. That is, if you generate more solar energy than what you need, what you can use yourself, Mm -hmm. that goes back into the grid and you get paid for it. Now the Victorian government has ruled that we only get a minimum of 6.8 cents per kilowatt. It's bigger. It's much higher in New South Wales, so maybe not for much longer. And um, some people have contracts because they put theirs in some time ago where they're getting 70 cents or 33 cents per mm-hmm. kilowatt, which more than balances what energy they're using after hours. So it you don't certainly install solar panels to make a fortune, which you mm-hmm. may have a while ago. Certainly the whole idea is if it will if it works for you to reduce your energy use during the day, then solar is worth looking at. But you've got to balance the investment cost up front with what you save in the long term. Okay. Now, I know there are a lot of variables, but what would a basic system cost? I know that something like a two kilowatt system, which is fairly small, and but that would probably service a retired couple who are at home during the day, or um, I don't know, somebody, a single parent with maybe a couple of small children. As long as they haven't got a whole lot of other issues like a tiled roof and a two-storey house and Mm -hmm. all those other variables which will add to the cost, the basic panels, inverter and installation will cost them around two and a half grand. But that's for a very good quality system and with good warranties and good customer service and perhaps even a visual display so they can see how much power they're generating during the day. And so the idea of a bulk buy is to get this very high-quality service at a, that sort of reasonable price. Is there, are there any other advantages for the community? What we've aimed to do is first make sure that anyone who we're going to um, hand names and addresses over to is going to be a reputable, secure, sustainable company. That's... That's the first point. The second one is, as people will know if they've looked at trying to buy solar, it's a bit like um, telephone plans, mobile phone plans. It's like you, it, trying to compare them is very difficult. We, by working with YEF, were very clear that we wanted a quality system that's not going to fall apart in the first 12 months or even within the 25-year manufacturer's warranty, but something that is good and that is of quality and secondly is backed with good warranty. So that doesn't come at a very basic price. But certainly then we looked at price and managed to whittle it down. As an extra bonus, um, we talked to companies about... If they manage to sign up a certain number of households through us, we've secured donation of medium-sized systems that we can decide what community organisation will receive those. And so that is another thing that's there that, if you like, can give people a bit of a warm inner glow. Mm -hmm. Apart from the fact they're going to have their own solar system, they may be encouraged to talk to their friends because somebody else will benefit. Fantastic. Well, thank you very much. That was Jennifer Colbert from Solar Neighbours. Now, Jennifer, just tell us what's the contact address, uh, website or phone number or what? Um, if people are on Facebook, they can search for Solar Neighbourhoods on Facebook and there's a, there's a page there that you can um, leave make contact when you ask to join it. Um, you can phone me on, I can give you my mobile number, 
And the other issue is you can Google us. If you put Solar Neighbourhoods Yarra, you will click through to the City of Yarra website and they have our contact details there. Okay. Otherwise, ring me on 0403 Fantastic. Thank you very much. That was Jennifer Colbert from Solar Neighbourhoods. I'm Beth Shepherd, and over the next few weeks, I'm going to take you to some of the exhibitions that are on in Melbourne as part of Climart's Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival. It's a festival of climate change-related arts and ideas and runs from the 11th of April to the 17th of May. There are loads of exhibitions and lectures going on as part of the festival, and today we're going to visit the Ian Potter Museum of Art at Melbourne University to find out about an exhibition that's on there at the moment called Nature Revelation. Hello, my name's Joanna Bossi. I am the curator at the Ian Potter Museum of Art at Melbourne University. And um, we've just opened an exhibition called Nature Revelation. Nature Revelation comprises international and Australian artists, eight artists whose work uh, addresses the natural world. And it's part of the Climart Art Plus Climate Equals Change Festival, which is happening mid-April to mid-May this year. The festival itself addresses climate change and the way that the arts has a very unique role to play in discussions and solutions. Uh, but my exhibition, I, I didn't want it to be so specifically geared towards that topic in a didactic sense. I wanted it to be much more of a philosophical and poetic way to address the issue of global warming, you know, the the whole raft of environmental challenges that we're facing due to climate change. And so one way of doing that was to focus on artists who use nature as a way of sort of evoking a sense of the sublime. So trying to... um, connect people more emotionally to the subject. Um, Obviously art acts on our intellect as well as our emotion but the works that I've selected I think have a really strong way of engaging with someone's sort of intimate emotion and their sense of being part of nature, a part of the world. One artist that I have to mention straight off is Jonathan Delafield Cook whose work comprises a 12 metre life-size sperm whale drawing which is pretty uh you know noticeable as soon as you walk into the gallery and it's an absolutely exquisite rendering of this beautiful creature um extremely lifelike in fact sort of almost too lifelike um the work is a is a composite drawn from other images as well as uh, specimens that he's studied at the national history museum in london and The whale itself just has an extraordinary presence in the space, not only due to its scale, but just that sense of connecting with another living being that's so foreign to you. Yeah, shall we go and have a look at it now? Yeah, sure. Would you like to paint a bit of a picture for our listeners? Well, one thing to to mention is that it's sort of monochrome so it's made with charcoal on a uh, primed canvas so the work as I said 12 meters long in six panels 
And one of the, the second panel comprises basically a, a, an enormous eye <laughs> that, you know, you really encounter and have such a emotional or intimate connection with, I think, as well as, you know, the whale's mouth, which is slightly maybe turned up into a little smile. It's, it's sort of hard to, hard to know, obviously. But the other striking thing about the work is that the whale has a range of scratches and scars across the surface of its skin which really evoke a sense of its life you know beneath the sea the the journey that it's been through and there's also patches of you know I guess a patina which look like some sort of scaling or or you know loss of skin on the whale and and as soon as we put it on the wall I realized that a section of that looks to me like a map of the world yeah I that's one of the first things I noticed when I looked at it too I started to look at the shapes and I thought oh it's kind of a bit of a world map it's sort of this this creature's carrying this whole world on its body yeah the lovely thing about that expanse of skin is that you do tend I mean when you stand back you read it as you know a realistic form the shape of the whale but when you approach it up close you get engaged by the surface and you start to read it almost as a landscape this kind of panorama of you know incredible shading and you know it's so detailed um, but when when you get close up you sort of lose that sense of reality as well. Can you explain a little bit about the sound that we're hearing as well in the space (laughs) because it does sound a bit (laughs) whale-like. It does but it's um it's not related to the whale. It is the soundtrack for a work by Susan Jacobs and Andrew Hayeswinkle, which is a projection video that we're looking at that's very abstract. Um, the original experiment that they embarked upon was to create fire from a lens made of ice, and this video is kind of a remnant of that experiment, and it depicts light sort of shining through this lens that it has started to break down because, the, of course, the sunlight passing through ice starts to melt it and the purity of the form of the lens started to degrade. But it produces this really beautiful kaleidoscopic patterns within the ice. And so there's sort of two sections to this work. One that we're looking at at the moment shows the, the water dripping from the lens, which um, has created these sort of diamond prism shapes. And then halfway through it sort of cuts to a more realistic sort of depiction of the lens and the little kaleidoscopic patterns. But the, the sound was commissioned by the artist, by composer David Fransky, and he made it with a computer program that relates the imagery and the sound. And the really nice thing about it is that it kind of, you know, it, it sort of builds up into this more piercing high-pitched noises, which, of course, you know, kind of do relate to the whale, Um and that, and that, you know, so, sonar communication ability that they have, sonar language. Um, but the other nice thing about it is that, well, I feel that it sets a scene also for the Ansel Adams photographs that are on display in the room as well. And people may very well have heard of Ansel Adams. He's a very famous American photographer who was working in the 1930s through to 50s. And the reason that I wanted him in the show is because his work really is the first sort of example of direct action on government policy regarding the environment. So through his interaction with or his involvement with the Sierra Club, 
in San Francisco. I think it was in, yeah, the 1940s. Yosemite National Park um, and, a, and a whole range of national parks were deemed to be national parks um, and government policy was put in place to maintain those spaces for the greater population. And it was his photographs that really exposed people to the beauty of the place. And there's, so there's nine Ansel Adams photographs in the exhibition that have all come from the National Gallery of Australia in Canberra. So we're really fortunate to have these. Um, they're all original prints, so made during the artist's lifetime. And it's something that, you know, we don't often get to see the work of such a sensational photographer in the flesh either. Um, and the richness of the surface, the beautiful use of dark and light, you know, you really do, you, you sort of gobsmacked by these images and you, re- you, you do realise what a tremendous photographer he was and how influential he was in terms of not only the medium but just depicting the landscape in this way that's very evocative and very, you know, really does engage your emotions. A couple of the works that I wanted to ask you about as well are the the images with the clouds suspended in uh, inside yes. rooms. Yes. So we might just have a wander over to have a look at a couple of those. So these works are, are they paintings or are they prints? They're photographs. So the original photographs by Dutch art, artist Bernard Smiled. Um, and Bernard, he's a, quite a young artist who has devised a technique of creating clouds indoors. So what these images depict uh, is a beautiful nimbus cloud which is lit, you know, stunningly um, invisibly by hidden lights and, and... So they're actual photographs of clouds that have been created within these rooms? Yes. Real clouds? Real clouds, yeah. So again, you know, with, with Photoshop and everything and because they do look so sort of magical and unreal, you think that they're fabricated but they're their true depictions of a, a, a fleeting moment. So what he does is he, he moderates the temperature and the humidity of a space, which, which does take quite a lot of organising. And, and this one particular image we're looking at um, is set, the, the cloud appears in what looks to be you know, a hospital or an old administrative room, corridor with you know, beautiful arched windows on one side and beautiful chequered floor... So he's very interested in, in sort of setting these clouds in spaces that look like they've been inhabited by people as well. And so the controlling the environment, um, humidity, temperature, he then uses water spray to, to create the right environments for the cloud and then um, introduces a burst of smoke. And then for a moment, so the smoke is kind of everywhere in the room and then because of the conditions, it forms a cloud, a sort of, you know, a a form, a nimbus cloud form, and then immediately starts to dissipate. So he, you know, sets up and only takes, you know, a small number of photographs because it is such a fleeting moment. And then the work is, is then the, I guess, the documentation of that event. But for this show, I, I I think it's such a a wonderful symbol for humans trying to control natural elements and you know this cloud kind of appears trapped in this room you know the windows are there but they're kind of inaccessible and it's appearing kind of lost it's a, it's a slightly sort of humorous but very poignant image
What do you think art can bring to the discussion around climate change? I think what art can bring to climate change discussions is really um, an openness and an ability to engage people intimately rather than from an intellectual perspective. I mean, I notice myself with discussions about climate change, you know, if I'm told what to think and I'm told what to do, it's very easy to switch off. Um, And I think what art can do is create space for discussions and, and enable people to come at things on their own terms. And also, you know, the arts community is a real community. So there's ways of of discussion and negotiation that are kind of across disciplines that are already happening within the arts. So I think if the arts is able to bring, you know, other disciplines into that existing sort of network and and, um, discussion across disciplines, then that's something else that the arts can offer um, just in terms of creating that that space and, and perhaps opening up new areas for for research or for talking or brainstorming and so forth. What do you hope people walk away with after they've seen the show? I guess I hope that people feel a sense of personal agency. You know, I I just would like people to feel somehow engaged with the art, of course, and then through that with ideas around the environment, around climate change. What I really hope people get from the show is just, yeah, a, a sense of connection really to to nature to the natural world that they may have forgotten about or they may you know not just have have felt for a while would you like to tell us when the exhibition's on until and when the gallery's open so that people can come along and have a look absolutely so the show nature revelation has just opened this week and is on until the 5th of july The gallery, Ian Potter Museum of Art at the University of Melbourne, we're closed on Mondays but otherwise um, open from 10 till 5 except the weekends which is 12 till 5 and um, we're at the University of Melbourne campus which is conveniently located (laughs) just on Swanston Street between um, Elgin and Faraday. So yeah, it's a free exhibition so come on down and see it. Thank you very much Joanna for chatting with me today. And that's the show for tonight. We've completely run out of 